Mary wanted me to point out that there's a very virtue-related Lenten retreat coming up to keep your eye on the bulletin. It, it's conveniently timed with Wheaton's spring break, and I know not everybody's, but March 3rd and 4th, totally silent retreat, no speaker, wonderful setting. Please keep that in mind to cultivate these virtues further. Everybody, Hal Merck. Oh, wow. I did not expect the applause. That's, that's great. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to start this morning, uh, and Matt's passing out some handouts, uh, so grab one of those if you get the chance. Uh, we're going to start this morning by uh, reading a passage of scripture, and uh, if it sounds familiar to some of you, it's because it was our Old Testament reading from last week. Uh, it's Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and I'll go ahead and uh, read it out loud. Uh, follow along with me if you can, uh, otherwise just uh, feel free to listen. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my, for my transgression? the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We'll talk about that passage in just a moment, but uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Hal Merck. Uh, here at All Souls, I am better known as Jennifer Merck's husband, uh, and I am an attorney. I uh, oversee litigation and dispute resolution for McDonald's Corporation. Uh, but this church is full of so many highly educated and intelligent people uh, that it is very challenging and intimidating to stand up here and try to teach this group anything. So I feel like I have to establish my teaching credentials right off the bat. I have 10 years of teaching experience. Uh, and I spent 10 years teaching Sunday school to the fourth and fifth grade students of All Souls. And if you think this is a smart group, you should try teaching that group for a little while. And if I were teaching that class today, I would have you memorize that passage that we just went through. And if you were able to recite it back to me, I would give you a piece of candy. So I don't know if that teaching technique will work with this group, but uh, I'm seeing some, some nods. So that sounds like maybe something we should try later. Uh, but I am very honored that Matt Milner asked me to teach this class today. Uh, in fact, I was so honored when Matt asked me that I went to my wife, Jennifer, and I said, you know, Matt asked me if I would teach the class on justice. And I've, I don't really know Matt all that well. I've had some conversations with him. Uh, he must have seen something in me that made him think that I was the right person to teach this class. And by this time in the conversation, I was just beaming. And Jennifer said, oh, I told him to ask you. <laughs> so that explains how I'm here this morning. Uh, but Matt did ask me to teach this class, and I am a lawyer. I am not a philosopher. Uh, we have plenty of philosophers in this church, and of course you can never have too many philosophers. Uh, the same could not be said about lawyers, I'm afraid. 
And we have to be the only church in the country that has more philosophers than lawyers, but that's one of the many things that we love about All Souls. Uh, but because I am a lawyer, this will be sort of a practical look at justice. We'll blend in a little philosophy, uh, but there are obviously people who are better qualified to talk about philosophy than I am. But I am excited to teach this class uh, because justice has always been uh, the cornerstone of my, my vocation. I read a book recently called uh, The Road to Character by David Brooks. And it was actually given to me by my in-laws who are sitting in back there. And some people might question whether they were trying to send me a message by giving me a book called The Road to Character, as if that was a road maybe I should get on at some point. But I think they actually just thought I would enjoy the book, and they were right about that. Uh, but in that book, David Brooks talks about vocation. And he talks about, as parents, we all want to help our children discern what their calling is. Uh, and so we ask them lots of questions as they're growing older. We ask them things like, what are you good at, and what are your talents, and things like that. Uh, but what the book says is that actually the question we should be asking them is, what problem do you want to solve? What problem do you want to solve in society? And for me, the problem of injustice was always something that I was interested in working on. So before we jump into our discussion on justice, let's talk just for a moment about that passage from Micah that we just read. Uh, Micah 6.8 which talks about justice, is obviously a very well-known verse. Gave a little context leading up to that. If you back up even further in, uh, in Micah chapter 6, you'll see a lot of legal themes that run through that passage. So you'll see, for example, uh, in verse 1, it says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. A lot of adversarial imagery there. And then it says, O oh, my people, this is God's voice now speaking, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And this passage goes on to outline then all of the different ways that God provided for his people so that they may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And then beginning in verse 6 where we picked it up, the prophet transitions. And he begins to discuss what our response should be to God's righteous acts, to the things that God has provided to us. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions designed to address what is it that God wants? What, what can we do to pay back God for all the things that he's provided to us? Is it sacrifice that God wants most from us? Even this concept of excessive sacrifice talks about thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. If we could just pay back enough, does he need us to give up our firstborn child in order to placate him? And then ultimately that passage concludes that the answer to all those questions is no. We know what God wants from us, and that's to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. So in discussing how we should respond to God's provision for us, Micah talks about virtue, which is what we've been talking about this year. He mentions the virtue of justice. He mentions the virtue of love and of kindness and humility. 
And this verse shows that the virtues we've been studying don't operate independently. They're all inextricably intertwined, and they operate in conjunction with each other. And you'll also note in verse 8 that the prophet uses, he phrases everything in the active voice. He doesn't say, think about justice. He says, do justice. He doesn't say, consider how you can be more kind to people. He says, love kindness in an active sort of way. And he doesn't say, meditate on God. He says, walk humbly with God. So what Micah appears to be saying is that our response to God's provision for us should be to develop virtue. And I thought Matt Milliner put it beautifully in an email that he sent to all of the people who were teaching in this series when he said that the virtues are not about making ourselves fit for God, but rather they're the shape of a life that has responded to and is sustained by God's grace. So let's transition now to justice. Justice is a very important concept in the Bible, obviously. The word justice appears 138 times in the Bible, not counting the words just or justly. If you include those, you're talking about well over 1,000 times. And scripture makes it clear that God is a God of justice. Isaiah 1.17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Isaiah 61.8 says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And Amos 5.24 says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So to talk about justice, the first thing we have to figure out is what, how are we defining the word justice? And much of what I'm sharing today is taken from this book called The Four Cardinal Virtues by Joseph Pieper. Uh, this book was published in 1966, which happens to be the same year that I was born. And you can see that the book is in a little better shape than I am. <laughs> That's a reprinting, hopefully. Uh, but... Um, much of what I'm sharing is taken from that book, and uh, Joseph Pieper, as I think Matt mentioned last week, was a, a German Catholic philosopher who lived during the 20th century, uh, and his work was primarily rooted in the work of, of Thomas Aquinas and Plato. And he begins his discussion on justice by saying the word conjures up lots of different meanings in people's minds. Uh, and then ultimately, he defines justice as follows. He says, justice is the notion that each person should be given what he or she is entitled to. The notion that each person should be given what he or she is entitled to. But if you think about that definition for a second, you realize that that sort of begs the question, what is every person entitled to? How does something come to truly belong to someone and belong to them so deeply that every other person is required to give it to them? So we recognize right off the bat that there must be something that precedes, uh, precedes justice, something that creates this entitlement in people. And the thing that creates the entitlement is what we call a right. If I have a right to something, then other people have the duty to respect that right and to give me what I'm entitled to. So justice involves giving people what they're entitled to and respecting people's rights. So then we have to ask, well, where, where do rights come from? So rights can come from a lot of different places. They can come from an agreement. So for example, if you enter into a contract in the law, we know that there are certain rights that flow from entering into a contract, contract rights. They can come, rights can come from entering into different types of relationships. If you enter into a marriage, that 
there are rights that flow from that. If you enter into a business partnership, there are rights that flow from that. Uh, but there's more to it than that, and as Pieper points out, some rights are just arise merely from the fact that we're created in God's image. And there are certain rights that flow from being created in God's image. In our secular culture, we don't hear people talk outside the church that often about rights being bestowed upon us by the creator because we're created in God's image. But we still have the same concept, even in secular culture, which we call human rights. You hear people talk about human rights violations and things like that. And the concept is the same, that there are certain rights that are just inherent in being human. And if you think about, for a moment, the history of injustice, it tends to flow not from this conscious decision to intentionally deprive people of something that they're entitled to, but rather it tends to flow from this fervent belief that certain people are not entitled to the same things that the rest of us are entitled to. It sort of flows from the view that there are certain people who are sort of less human than other people. And so if you think about slavery, you think about the Holocaust, you think about internment camps, those things didn't flow from this belief that there are people out there who are entitled to their freedom or their life, and we're going to deprive them of it anyway. It's more flowing from the belief that these people are different from us. They don't have the same rights as us. And so we're not acting unjustly by depriving them of certain rights. So we talked a little bit about rights and how every right has a corresponding duty that goes along with it. If one person has a right to something, then other people have a duty to respect that right. And when we talk about justice, we're talking about the person who owes the duty. We're talking about something being owed when we talk about a duty. So a duty is sort of like a debt. There's a certain debt concept in, in when we talk about justice. So being just means to owe something to someone and to pay the debt. Now, another interesting aspect of justice is that justice is focused exclusively on how we interact with other people. So many of the virtues that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about are focused on people's internal state, what's going on inside the heart. And so you think about upcoming weeks where we're talking about fortitude and temperance, really focused on the inner self. Uh, you can't really determine whether someone, for example, is acting bravely or cowardly just based on watching them. You have to know what's going on in their heart. But justice is focused on how we act externally toward other people. You can be just even if you lack the appropriate motive. An example of that would be paying back a debt to someone begrudgingly. You don't want to pay back the debt, but you pay it back, you're doing a just act. So you don't have to be just to do a just act, and you can also do something that's unjust without being unjust. But when we're talking about the virtue of justice, we're talking about more than just doing a just act. We're talking about cultivating a state of being that, where it becomes second nature uh, to do the just thing in every circumstance. And because justice is focused on how we act toward others, some have argued that it's the most important of the cardinal virtues because justice is the way that the other virtues work themselves out in our relationship with other people. I don't want to spend too much time on that because we don't actually have to rank the cardinal virtues and decide which is the most important. And I don't have to prove that Matt asked me to talk about the most important cardinal virtue. <laughs> that would not be very virtuous of me. But I will just point out that he did schedule my discussion for the same day as the Super Bowl, so maybe 
I don't know, maybe a coincidence, I'm not sure. But some people have underscored the importance of justice by just pointing out that other virtues are focused on how, whether we're properly ordered within ourselves, and justice is focused on whether we're properly ordered in our relationship with others. So let's talk a little bit about the three forms of justice that Joseph Pieper talks about. In his book, he asks the following question. He says, when can it be said that justice prevails in a community? And he cites back to Thomas Aquinas, and he says, Aquinas said that justice prevails in a community when the three basic relationships of communal life are properly ordered in the right order. So what are the three basic relationships in communal life? Those are, first, the relationship between individuals, individuals one to another, and then secondly, the relationship of individuals to society as a whole. And then third, the relationship between society as a whole and the individuals that compose it. So if you look on your handout, you'll see a, a diagram that sort of illustrates these three basic relationships. And I have to give a shout out to my wife who figured out how to get that little diagram on the, on the page. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, and so those three basic relationships then correspond to the three different types of justice. On the bottom line there, you'll see commutative justice, which orders the relationship between individuals. Legal justice, which orders the relationship between individuals and society. And then distributive justice, which orders society's relationship with the individuals who compose the society. And as we talked about before, the hallmark of all three forms of justice is some kind of indebtedness. When you're talking about commutative justice, you're talking about an individual owing something to someone else. With legal justice, you're talking about individuals owing something to society as a whole. And with distributive justice, society owes something to the individuals in the society. So let's quickly sort of walk through those three different types of justice. Commutative justice, first of all, involves, as we've talked about already, individuals giving another individual what he or she is entitled to. And that's true regardless of whether you have a relationship with that person, even if that person is a stranger to you. So in, in describing the sorts of acts that characterize commutative justice, Pieper uses words like restitution and restoration. So treating other people justly involves restoring to them something that's rightfully theirs. It could involve something as tangible as we said before of you know, paying a debt to someone or more likely, it can involve something very abstract like treating someone with the respect that they deserve, or restoring dignity to people, or apologizing for infringing someone's rights or hurting someone. And Pieper does this beautiful job of sort of explaining that every individual's state of equilibrium is constantly being thrown out of balance. And in a world of competing interests, we're all infringing one another's rights all the time in big ways and small ways. And justice involves this constant process of putting things right and back in their proper order in our relationship with other people. According to Pieper, the just person is someone who recognizes when they've committed some sort of wrong or injustice and admits it and tries to fix it. Legal justice, the second form of justice, this is the, response, the responsibility that in individuals owe to society as a whole. And it primarily involves the individual's obligation to respect the authority of the state and to abide by the laws that the society has created. 
So we need to look a little bit at the relationship between law and justice. The law obviously is intended to regulate the way that we interact with each other in community. But you don't have to go very deep into the history books to know that there are such things as unjust laws. And Aquinas was actually quoted as saying an unjust law is no law at all. So how do we know if a law or an executive order, for example, uh, is just or unjust? How do we make that determination? Uh, so Pieper argues that in order to be a just law, obviously a law or an executive order has to be consistent with God's law. A law that uplifts human personality is a just law, and a law that degrades human personality is an unjust law. So he uses the example of, of segregation laws and says clearly those were unjust laws because they degrade human personality. They create this false sense of superiority in one group of people and a false sense of inferiority in another group of people. And unjust laws tend to relegate people to the status of things. So in a just society, individuals have an obligation to abide by just laws but they're not required to abide by unjust laws. So that sort of feels a little relativistic because uh, people have different views of what a just law is and an unjust law. And we see, obviously, all, even in the past few weeks, all of the discussion that goes on in our political arena about whether things are just or unjust, and people have wildly different views about that. So I'll just leave that there for a moment. Uh, finally, distributive justice. This involves society's obligation to the individuals in the society. It relates to how power is exercised in society. And the question there is whether the relationship between the people who are in power and the people that they govern is rightly ordered. So Pieper asks the question, what, what is an individual entitled to when it comes to society's obligation to, to pay that person? What, what are we entitled to in society? Because when the state goes about distributing things to people, it's not like each individual has a right to all of what's being distributed. Rather, we have sort of this, this common right to a share in common goods. And so distributive justice involves distributing common goods proportionately. Common goods would be things like food and shelter, clothing, education, and health care. But again, how do we determine what the proper proportion is for any individual to receive? Pieper concludes that in most instances, that question is answered by whoever is in power. And so Pieper says that distributive justice can only be achieved through just government, and just government, in turn, depends entirely on just rulers. And he goes on to describe the type of ruler that should rise to power in a truly just society. And I'm going to read just a little section of that, which is set forth on your handout. And as I read it, I want you to listen carefully and consider whether this describes any of the leaders that have risen to power in our country. So Pieper's talking here about the importance of rulers exhibiting the virtue of prudence. And he says, he is prudent who can listen in silence, who can take advice so as to gain a more precise, clear, and complete knowledge of the facts. If this standard were applied, it would probably mean that even without formally rejecting him, in fact, before there were any discussion about him, a rash, brash person 
motivated by emotion or craving for power, would necessarily be excluded from running for office as manifestly unfit to realize the justice of rulers. Now, that was written back in 1966, so he didn't have any particular people in mind, or perhaps he did, but they were from a long time ago. But it's interesting to talk a little bit about how that applies to our current political situation. In this last election cycle, there was a lot more discussion than I recall ever taking place about the question of whether certain candidates had the right temperament to serve as president, whether they were morally fit to serve as president, whether they exhibited the characteristics or the virtues that we expect in our leaders. And what people would say is that that is an important dialogue to have because the only way to realize a just society is by having just rulers. And a just ruler is someone who gives everyone in society what they're entitled to and distributes the common goods proportionally. So I want to say just a couple of things, and then we'll open it up for, for questions, about the limits of justice. So we've kind of sketched the outline of justice and what it means, how it's defined, what it means in the different relationships in society. But let's talk a little bit about the limits of justice. So we, we talked about the fact that in communal life, people are always becoming indebted to each other, and people are constantly paying back those debts. And doing justice involves this constant attempt to restore equilibrium in our relationships with other people. But, and, and Father Martin talked about this in his sermon last week, the world cannot be rightly ordered through justice alone. Equilibrium can never be fully restored through restitution and the payments of debts. So why is that? First of all, there are some debts that by their very nature, people can never pay in full. We can't, for example, ever fully pay on our own our debt to God. God is the God that created us. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He constantly sustains us. And there's no point in time when we can say to God, okay, we're even now. We, we, we've got it, right? But even though we recognize that there's no way for us to fully pay back our debt to God, we try to pay back what we can. And that's a good way to sort of understand the concept of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Paul talks about offering our whole lives as a living sacrifice to God. But even by offering our whole lives, we'll never repay our debt in full. We do what we can. And obviously, the essence of the gospel is that God has provided the perfect sacrifice through his son to ultimately repay that debt to God and to demonstrate his love for his people. And it also takes us back to the passage that we started with from Micah, where the prophet is recounting all of the different ways that God has provided for his people and basically saying, these are all the ways that you're indebted to me as my people. And that passage asks, what, what can we do to ever repay that debt? And the answer, as we talked about, is not more sacrifice. There's no way that we can, even with 10,000 rivers of oil, we're not going to pay back our debt to God. But what is it that we can do? What, what small things can we do? Well, we can do justice. And we can love others. And we can show mercy to others. And we can walk with God. And that leads me to the second limitation of justice. And again, Father Martin mentioned this last week. In order to keep the world rightly ordered, we have to be prepared to give more 
than just what we're obligated to give to people. And this creates a comparison between justice and love. Justice has to be infused with mercy if society is to be rightly ordered, and it has to be infused with love. Justice, just to contrast the two for a moment, is focused on what people deserve because they have a right to it. But love, on the other hand, goes far beyond the parameters of justice. It benefits others regardless of what they deserve. Justice says, to each his own, and love says, all I have is yours. And we're obviously thankful that God interacts with us on the basis of love and not just on the basis of justice and what we deserve. And so much of scripture underscores the preeminence of love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 Corinthians 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Jesus distills the law to its essence by saying, what we should do is love God and love our neighbor. So I think the best way to sort of wrap up our discussion on justice is to point us in the direction of the even greater virtue of love. So that's what I have, and we have just a few minutes for any questions that anyone might have. Yes? That's a great question, isn't it? Uh, you know, I think my wife would answer that question. I'm not going to make you answer the question, don't worry. By saying that the theme of the Old Testament, I would say, is also love. I think, I think a lot of times we try to draw a distinction between the message that's being communicated in the Old Testament and the message that's being communicated in the New Testament. And one of the things my wife has taught me is that the whole thing is this meta story uh, that throughout, I mean, you know, the, the Micah passage is clearly, it's from the Old Testament. And basically the theme, I think, is the same. There's a different feel, clearly, to the Old Testament as we read through it. But the overall point is that God loves his people. And I would say that that's the overarching theme of, of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and really the whole story. Well, yes? Uh, I'll tell you what Peeper would say. He would say, absolutely. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, he's, he's German, and when he, when he talks about the different forms of government, he has democracy pretty low on the list in terms of uh, the types of, of government that would ultimately lead to the rise of a just ruler. Uh, he feels as if uh, it's very challenging for the people to exercise that appropriately, and I think you know, some, some would argue that that may be what's going on in our, in our country. It reminds me of a, a, a story that, um, something that happened to me. I, I was uh, talking to a colleague of mine in Russia, uh, and uh, we were talking about different forms of government. And I asked her what I thought was a fairly obvious question. Um, she was very sort of anti-Putin and, uh, and really disgruntled with things that were happening in Russia. And I asked her, um, you know, if you had your choice of any form of government, what form of government would you choose to be under? And I thought there was sort of an obvious answer to that question. And her response was, well, I know it wouldn't be democracy. 
And I said, why not? And she said, because I know that the majority of people in Russia support Putin, and so I can't be part of a, a system of government where the majority of people are going to ultimately decide uh, what, what happens and who, who's, who's ruling the country. Um, so I just thought it was an interesting perspective and not what I was, not what I was expecting. In back. That's a great point. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it just underscores the complexity of humans. You know, we're all complex people. And, and too often we try to categorize people and put people in boxes. And then the moment we put someone in a box, we feel like, okay, I can check that box and I know how to deal with that person. But people are far more complex than that. We all are. Um, and that's, that's an excellent point. Thank you for sharing that. Dan. Right. That was his empowerment. That's it. You get a sweep. You want to come in. And that's the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a human culture is kicked out out of it, and that's what ends up happening. So. It's a great question, and probably one we would need a philosopher to get up here and answer. <laughs> Um, I, I feel the same way that you do, Dan, and I've had, I have, you know, friends who are atheists and I've had this very discussion with them because I, I feel like if I were an atheist, there's no, there's no limits. I would, I always tell my atheist friends, man, you should be doing all this sort of stuff, like all the stuff that I really want to do that's sinful, you should go out and do that, you know, and they're like, what are you talking about? And I, I don't know, so I was, in college I was always, in the few philosophy courses that I took, I was always sort of struck by existentialism because I sort of feel like, you know, as, as, as somebody will have to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but as Nietzsche talks about sort of this, this ubermanch, am I right? Any, yeah, okay, all right. This superhuman who is the only person in society who realizes that, in fact, you're the gorilla. You can take whatever you want, and everyone else is sort of subject to, uh, I, that always sort of appealed to me, but uh, I do think it's difficult. I think my, my friends who are atheists would say, you know, they talk about sort of the promulgation of, of the human species and that, you know, it just sort of feels right to treat people fairly and things like that. But I do think it's difficult to talk about justice without having God in the equation. So I think that's a good point. Matt?
Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I was, I was really struck um, as, as I was preparing for, uh, for this lecture on how different justice is from a lot of the other virtues that we're discussing because there tends to be sort of general agreement on what someone looks like who's humble and what someone looks like who you know, has fortitude or temperance, but there's more disagreement about justice in our society than anything. I mean, you see, you know, if I, I'm not on Facebook, but I, I see enough of it to know that there are fights about everything and people feel passionately about questions of justice. And it, it sort of strikes us to our core, um, and yet there's, there's very little agreement. And I, I don't feel like I was able to really add any, any light into that. Peeper certainly isn't able to answer that question either. Um, but it's a challenge to try to figure out, you know, when, when are we operating under the, under the you know, modus operandi of justice, and when um, are, are we sort of misguided? I think that's a difficult question. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I, I sort of felt, that's why I sort of ended the way that I did, because you sort of, when you talk about justice, there, it feels a little hollow at the end of the discussion, unless you inject this concept of love and grace, as you pointed out. And I think, again, that's what Father Martin was talking about last time. If you have just justice, you get a figure like Javert, and then you're Right, right. Yeah, great point. Yes? Um, kind of going off that, so our criminal justice system is kind of based on the idea that if you do certain things, you give up certain rights, like mm-hmm. permanent rights. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to square with a lot of what we've been talking about. I want to ask you to rewrite our prison system. But like, could you really speak to that? It's a great point. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of discussion in society now about one of the rights that you give up forever is the right to vote. And that's become a big issue recently where people are saying is that, you know, if you serve your five-year sentence, why should you lose your right to vote for more than five years? Um, you know, you're still participating in society. You've paid back your debt to society. Uh, but we, as a, as a society, have decided, no, you, you're going to lose your right to vote forever. Um, I think there are, there are movements within society to try to address exactly what you're saying and try to, try to prevent that from happening. Um, but I, I think it's an excellent point. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.